You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that in your mercies you have brought us together today. And Lord, um, I thank you for uh, the word that we heard this morning from our brother Zach. I pray that you will fill our hearts with hope even in the midst of a very difficult season and lord thank you for these dear friends who are here this morning i pray that you will encourage them and strengthen them in grace i pray that you'll give them during this season of advent a longing for you and your kingdom i pray O oh lord that you will do a work in our own hearts and in the hearts of those people that we love who are close to us that you would raise our affections and our hopes and our desires toward you Lord, teach us to know that the things that we have in this world really are ephemeral, they're fleeting. We give so much of our affection and our attention to them, and we should. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to lift our eyes to a city whose foundations will never know any ruin. Um, So Lord, give us that sense during this season, we pray. Do that work that we cannot generate on our own. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in. Um, We've got COVID seats right here. That's these two if you want them. I think you're safe this morning. <laughs> They're going. To, I don't blame you. I'd go over here too. <laughs> so um, I don't remember who was here last week uh, for the for the class, um, but we're we are in the book of Job, spending two weeks thinking about the nature of this book and the way in which this book provides for us a shape of what the Christian witness can and should look like in the midst of human reality. Um, We saw in the first two chapters, and we we didn't even get out of these chapters last week, and today the goal is to do the whole rest of the book. So, of course, you take that with multiple grains of salt. Um, But the first two chapters are the chapters where we see Job's whole world come undone. And it's a coming undone that's the kind of thing that If you're given toward fear and anxiety, it's the kind of chapters, I think, that could keep you up late at night. Um, Job's whole world is turned upside down in what I think can be properly called a holocaust. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his possessions. He lost everything. So Job goes from a stable pattern of existence to his life being overturned in a blink. And I mentioned last week Passing on the way out, out of class, I think. I mentioned that Job's suffering, even though Job's suffering comes to us in what might best be understood as an extreme form. It's, it's almost hyperbolic in the sense of it, it, you can't think of it being worse. So there's an extremity to the suffering that we see in the book of Job that can, I think, make him, in some sense, discontinuous with the majority of our lives. I mean, some of us may have known these kinds of sufferings. Many of us have known suffering. Most of us have. But this kind of apocalyptic or or Holocaust-style suffering of Job, it seems like the stuff of of books. Um, And that, I think, can make Job seem a few steps removed from us. And what I tried to encourage you to think about last week, and I'll do so again today, Um, Job's sufferings, though they are extreme, are probably given to us in that extremity so that they function almost like an umbrella under which the whole panoply of human suffering can be found. So you have an extreme here, 
But the extreme is meant, I think, to carry with it a connection to all kinds of human sufferings that find their touchstone in this story of Job. So even if you don't feel like uh, Job's sufferings or his his discontent or his struggle, his own despair, if we can use those terms that we heard from from Zach this morning, that, that seems discontinuous from your own life. I think we're meant to find some point of contact with Job, even on the more mundane aspects of what it means to be human. Later on in the book, Job says something that I think is rather fascinating. Man, or humanity, is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. I mean, this is such a great image. You sit around a campfire, a little wind comes along, and you know immediately what happens to the campfire. The sparks fly upward. And Job, in a sort of beautiful metaphor, says that's the nature of what it means to be human. To be human means to enter into the fray of a shared human experience, even though this one is admittedly extreme, but to enter into the fray of, of shared human experience that lets us know that within the confines of our lives, um, loss and deprivation hardship, suffering, discouragement, despair. This is the warp and woof of what we may all know in some moment in time, uh, in some form or fashion. And so this is what I think makes Job's response in the first two chapters so remarkable, right? Um, the end of Job chapter 1. Job tore his robe, he, he arose, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and then he worshipped. And he makes this incredible claim um, about the Lord's freedom Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this it says, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. It's remarkable. This is Job, a fox's book of martyrs Job. right? This is Job, braveheart Job, if I can use those terms. Um, he doesn't charge God with any wrong, and he recognizes something that I think, and I mentioned this last week, is um, uh, Christianity 702. I use that from a, I, I teach in a divinity school. So all the upper level courses have a seven in front of them, like 512. That's first year stuff, you know. The 712 courses, that's third year. You know, the, the hard classes have a seven in front of them. Uh, the lesson that we learn here with Job's statement is. Christianity 7.12. It's, it's a hard lesson. And that is, the good gifts that we have in this life are never ours by possession. And they're really never ours by promise either. That's, that's a hard... I mean, I, I don't even like really dwelling on this because it's, it's a fearful thing. Um, God has promised us, and we're going to see this today in the middle of the book, God has promised us His Son. Which is, in effect, God saying, I've not just given you my son, an extension of myself, but because we're Trinitarian, we know that God giving his son to us is God giving him his very self to us. You have me. You have the infinity of my person. You have the infinity of my grace and my love. You are, you are mine. I've chosen you. You are safe. Nothing can pluck you from my hand from, from the standpoint of eternity and, your, and, and the security of your soul and your body in its resurrected state. That is secure. You can rest assured on it. But we're not promised the goodies of this world. No one's, and we mentioned this last week, but no one's promised you know, that you're going to have just a stunning marriage. Or no one's promised 
that your financial situation is always going to be stable. Um, no one's promised that you're always going to find your job fulfilling and meeting you right. We're not promised those things. Now, when God gives them to us, we see this in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think we see this throughout the Bible. When God gives us those good gifts, He doesn't give them to us as an end. In other words, something that we then grab onto so that our desires become demands. And when our desires become demands, then unwittingly often we have slid often unconsciously, unwittingly, into the realm of idolatry. And it's so... I do it every day of my life. I mean, I think this is the nature of, of so much of our struggle. When we move from those desires that we have and we turn them into demands, then we've moved from the realm of gratitude, reception, thanksgiving, into the holding tight of those things that ultimately then make us turn inward and really become, ironically, the cause of our despair. These are tricky things, right? So I think Job is modeling for us something here about the care, the response of a Christian in the face of the freedom of God. Um, God can give. God can take away. When He does give, those gifts are not ends unto themselves. They are means. They are uses toward the honor and the glory and the praise and the worship of God alone. So, and that's why I think the book of Ecclesiastes, in its kind of fun moments, and you talk about a dyspeptic, you know, non-beach read. You know, Ecclesiastes is a rough read. But here's Kohelet, the preacher, at the end of his life saying, listen, as I look back over the warp and woof of my existence, let me tell you a few things you might want to know. The biggest thing is, fear God and worship Him. Keep God central to your existence. Because when he goes to the periphery, you will lose perspective on what's really important in life and in view of eternity. Fear God and keep his commandments. But here's number two. And the number two thing I think is so shocking coming from the mouth of Kohelet because it seems so... It's like it's walking on the sidewalk outside of your front door. Here's, here's number two. Enjoy the good gifts that God gives you in this world. Enjoy them. You're meant to enjoy them. Uh, the family dinner, however separated you are, uh, you know, for protocol reasons, or the evening out, or the the moment that you you're, that you feel this is a good moment in life. The book of Ecclesiastes is saying, embrace it, embrace those things, see those things as God's good gifts, and enter into them fully, not with guilt, not with reservation. Enter into them fully. And here Job comes along and says, and let me give you another perspective on this. Those things aren't yours by necessity. They're not yours by demand. And they're not your possession forever. God can give and God can take away. This is the challenge. This is the hard thing. Um, and this, I mean, again, we're thinking about analogies here. 2020 feels in so many ways, and this almost becomes cliche now, but I'll say it anyway. 2020 feels like one of those years where um, we, it, we know the takeaway moment. I mean, we're feeling this, I think, culturally on multiple levels, not just because of COVID. On multiple levels, we're feeling this. Now, do any of you read the Babylon Bee? Um, it's a source of great insight and truth. <laughs> um, I, I got a, a, a buddy of mine sent me an article from the Babylon Bee this year that said 2020 is the worst year ever. Unless you lived, and then it gives this whole litany of other years. Like, unless you lived during the plague, that was bad, real bad. Um, unless you live, and then it goes through all this. So again, we're dealing with the perspective of our moment in time, which is relative to us. Okay, but these are challenging moments, and the, and and the, and the weight of them sits on us. And here, Job is giving us, I think, some kind of insight into the character 
um, of God's freedom. God is free. And how do we respond to the freedom of God? That's that's the, the pressing question. And this is when you move from Job chapter 1 and 2, Job sitting by the fire, scraping the boils off with a broken clay pot, awful scene, when you move from that, and he's still not sinning with his mouth, into chapter 3, now things become a little bit more complicated in our picture of Job. The painting, um, this is not, the, pa- the realistic portrait becomes a little Picasso-ish. You know, as you move from Job 1 and 2, where you have this sort of great scene of Job, the stalwart of the faith, holding on to God's promises, holding on, um, not sinning with his mouth in the face of human suffering and the freedom of God. And then that painting begins to alter and it begins to shift before us in ways as we move into the heart of the book in chapter 3 and following. Now Job is disoriented. And Job's disorientation has to do with the central feature of his suffering that's presented in this book, and that is Job is wrestling now with God. The claim, I read a commentator that said it this way, and I thought it was very good. The affirmation of faith that we read so, so strongly in the first two chapters. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That affirmation that Job makes in the first two chapters, in the middle of the book, these large chapters here, chapters 3 through 37, now Job's having to live into them. And to live into all the complexity of them. That's why I like this book. This book in its canonical form does not present Job as a flat character. What's a flat character? God brings suffering into his life. He responds with the the stalwart character, the heroic character of his faith. He holds on to it. End of scene. That's a flat presentation. We don't get a flat presentation of Job in the book of Job. We get a very round and complex picture of this human being in the face of the freedom of God and God's otherness. And as you move into these middle chapters now, we get a very different sense of Job. Let me read to you some of the things that Job just says in the middle of chapter 3, moving on. Number one, I regret the day that I was born. Number two, he says, I loathe my own life. Number three, and this gets to the heart of it, he terrifies and afflicts me in my dreams. I mean, this, it's, this is so deeply personal in Job's relating to God. God doesn't seem to be acting according to the patterns by which I knew Him. I could predict what God would do in my whole life until that day. And then when that day happened, the train went off the track and I don't recognize Him anymore. This is what Karl Barth said. Job has encountered God in a form that's no longer recognizable. Up is down, left is right. And the most basic question of Job's existence has come undone. And this centers on the middle point of what it is that's motivating and generating Job's despair. And here's the question. Who are you, God? That's the question he's asking. I don't recognize you anymore. Who are you? He terrifies and afflicts me in my dreams. I want, listen to this, and this is a, a, a kind of a red thread through these whole chapters. I want my day in court to make my case before God. Give me my moment in the heavenly tribunal to bring my case because something's gone wrong here. I haven't done anything to offend him. Read Psalm 44, by the way. It's a great paired text with Job. When did we break your covenant, God? When did we do this? No, no, not recently. 
And yet we're suffering. And this is why Job wants to stay in court. I didn't do anything to offend the divine. Why am I suffering? Uh, he goes on to say, God hasn't, I mean, God has wronged me. That's the language that he uses. And then shocker here, at one point in time, Job in these chapters says, God isn't good anymore. And that's the challenge. I mean, the challenge is it's very easy to slap bumper stickers on the backs of our cars. It's another thing to live into the deep challenge of faith and to our faith about the goodness of God. Is God still good when my world has flipped upside down? That is not an easy thing to lean into. Brevard Child says that Job's suffering is extreme, but it's the suffering of all of God's people. It's, it's as if the weight of the suffering of God's people through time makes its appearance on Job with force and fury. And there's no um, easy answers to the questions. So we see here that at the center point of Job's suffering is God is no longer recognizable. I don't see, understand him anymore. Is God really good? Who are you, God? So let's... Table that for a second. That's number one. Second thing that we see in these chapters are the friends. Oh, friends. Um, here they come. Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz. End of chapter 2. They see him on the ground. They don't recognize Job and his suffering. They keep their mouths shut for seven days and seven nights. No one speaks a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. And when after the seven days, Job speaks and he says, Let the day that perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it. That's Job chapter 3. And then we go through the rest of this book. And these, it's, it's as if these friends are now ready to tag team with one another. All right, Eliphaz, let me offer you my wisdom, Job. And then, then he, then he slaps, he hand slaps Bildad who comes into the ring. Now it's my turn. Let me give you an assessment of what I see going on in your life, Job. And then here comes Zophar. He comes in and makes his own assessment. Let me tell you what's going on with your life. And Job, in this back and forth wrestling match with his three friends, proclaims and announces his innocence all the way through. What you're saying is not right. It's not, I mean, maybe it's right in an abstract way, but it's not right in my life. It does not accord with my life. And by the way, by the time we get to the end of the book of Job, we know that these three friends are off. They're, 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 they're not right. They need to be atoned for. And Job offers a sacrifice that atones for them as well. So these three friends here come in and they offer Job their wisdom. Can we talk about this just for a second? Um, have you ever sort of read what some of these friends say? Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz? And I, I, I've struggled with this. The, the struggle is, some of the stuff they say doesn't sound all that bad. In fact, oh, this is the hard part. In fact, there might be a few Bible verses here or there to support what they say. Like in the book of Proverbs. Um, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed out begging bread. That's a verse in the Bible. Uh, train up a child in the way in which he or she should go. And then when they're old, they won't depart from it. Except for when they do. I mean, this is the challenge of the life of wisdom. What is wisdom in the Bible? Like a book like Proverbs. 
A book like Proverbs comes to us to provide for you and for me, and this is crucial, in the context of the fear of the Lord. That frames a biblical view of wisdom that's very different from Egypt or Babylon or Assyria, where you can go to all of those cultures and you can find wisdom books there too. You might not know this, but they discovered wisdom writings from an Egyptian named Amenemope, um, who was around probably a thousand years before Solomon. And some of the Proverbs that we read in Proverbs are almost carbon copies from Amenemope down in Egypt. So Solomon was a well-read man. Borrow, I mean, that, that term borrowing from the Egyptians, right? I mean, Solomon did it. And he borrowed all kinds of what we might call cultural capital from any, any truth source that he could find, slapped a lot of it in the book of Proverbs, but framed all of it, not like they did in Egypt, framed it in the context of the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, which is central to our vision, think the book of and the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, shapes our understanding of wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom are general maxims for how you should live and can live life well. And according to the normal warp and woof of human existence, you can expect it to go this way. Except for when it doesn't. Right. And that's, okay, this is one of the reasons I love the Old Testament and why it's better than the New Testament. Don't tell anybody I said that. I mean, this is one of the reasons I love these wisdom books that we have in the Bible. Because we have Proverbs paired with Job and Ecclesiastes. Not to say, as you'll read some scholars say, that Proverbs stuff is nonsense. That's not what they're doing. They're putting Proverbs in proper perspective. They're putting the wisdom tradition in proper perspective. They're giving the wisdom tradition heaping spoonfuls of humility to say, listen, you should engage your life and your mind and your resources to live in a wise way, executing wisdom and the resources and and the occurrences of your life. Go after it. You should do that. But you should also recognize that wisdom is not omniscient. Wisdom cannot see the sum total of someone else's existence. Can we put it in the terms of what we're going to learn in the book of Job? Wisdom is never a substitute for God. So what we see, I think, with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, and this is a great, this is a good word for me as a teacher. This is how I pay my bills, right? The The word is, you can use wisdom in an unwise way. You can deploy the wisdom tradition in a way that is ultimately unwise. And that's what we see Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz doing. They are completely um, left-footed, two left feet, ham-fisted when it comes to engaging the complexity of the human person they have before them. They have their white papers, they have their position papers, and they are applying them baldly to Job's situation, and they're not taking into account that there's more to the situation than their wisdom can give an account of. And God has a very clear thing to say to these men by the end of this book. I'm God, you're not. Wisdom is a servant. It's a tool. But it is not a master and a Lord. I'm the master and the Lord. And by the way, that's why Proverbs, I believe, begins in chapter 1, verse 7 with, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You, you, you move the fear of the Lord and the centrality of God's being and God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, His overseeing of human circumstances toward their own end. When you remove that, now all of a sudden you're relying on the human achievement of wisdom. 
And Kohelet in Ecclesiastes says, I gave my life to all of that, and at the end of it, I realized it was um, a vanity of vanities. It was chasing after the wind. So I think there's a caution for you and for me in this. There's a, I think there, this, is a, this is a caution for you and for me when we're dealing with people, especially in their suffering. Big, flashing yellow lights for you and for me to provide for them a narrative that sums up why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. There are limitations to what we can know and what we can ever know fully about the complexities of someone's life. And at the same time, and again, this is wisdom, right? We want, I want a manual. You know, I, I want the, I mean, I want the basketball hoop manual that I just put together for my kids, you know, in our backyard. Put bolt here. You know, uh, place net this way. I got that. We, we want a manual for life. And unfortunately, we don't get a manual for life that says, in this situation, do A, B, C, result D. What we get is a, a series of, of uh, instructions that are related to wisdom that call us into, an, into a life lived before God and humility, saying, the circumstances are bigger than I know and understand. Oh God, help me to understand and to know. Help me be able to speak into this wisely and carefully. And this is why James chapter 1, again, a wonderful resource for Christians in this moment, says, if you lack wisdom, and we're like, well, who, who, who's, gonna, who's not going to sign up for that? I do. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Because God gives it out generously. Liberally, He gives out His wisdom to His people. So we see here the danger, I think, of using wisdom in an unwise way. Uh, third or seventh thing. I don't know where we are. Um, Job chapter 19. We've got to get here. If I, if I don't get to this part, I've, I've failed you. In the middle of Job's suffering, and in the middle of his confusion, we see again the testimony to his faith. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Verse 25. Where you can almost hear Handel's music begin to play here. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed... Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Um, this is a beautiful testimony, I think, in this moment in time to Job's, to Job's faith. He pleads in these chapters. Um, he, again, he's responding to his friends. In verse 21, he says, Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Another translation of that might be, the hand of God has attacked me. Why do you, like God, also pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? I mean, Job wants his words written down. And here's the What words? The words of his complaint. The words of his suffering. The words that he has wronged God. He wants an account. I mean, you, you legal people in the room, he's creating his case. Write everything down because when I get my day in court, I want to pull out my Exhibit A. 
I want to be able to bring the evidence that I need to the heavenly courtroom that I'm going to have with God at some point. Write all of this down. That's the context in which he makes this enormous claim about believing in his future Redeemer. And it's all of this vitriol and venom in chapter 19 that leads to the two verses that most everyone in the Christian tradition, especially because of Handel's Messiah, knows or at least has heard. It's from this chaos and this disorder. The disorder of Job's own soul is from the darkness of his deepest suffering. And it's a suffering that's about God and whether or not God is really good and whether or not God can be trusted. So it's from the slew of despond that Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that He shall stand on the latter day upon the earth. In other words, if you're reading along in Job 19, we all know the verses. I know that my Redeemer, we know those verses. But if you're just reading along in Job 19 up until the point where those verses are heralded, you would have never seen it coming. It doesn't, it seems so out of place. Job is making hard comments about God and His friends and His suffering and it's out of the blue doesn't even flow from the logic of Job 19 that he makes this most beautiful uh, uh, claim about his face. He makes his confession of his belief. And what is his confession about? He's pleading for an arbiter. He's pleading for a redeemer. A loyal figure that's related to him and responsible for Him that will stand and plead His case. Someone that will stand and mediate between Him and the God that has attacked Him. I need a lawyer, in effect effect is what He's saying. I need someone who will stand in for me. And it's not immediately clear in Job 19 who this Redeemer is, but the next phrase forces us to realize that this figure is God Himself. It says, for at the latter days, he will stand upon the earth. Now, I'm going to get geeky with you for a second and go to the language, all right? Um, but the, the language here, as, as I'm reading it, I think, is not temporal and adverbial. At the last time, he shall stand upon the earth. That's a temporal adverbial claim that's being made. And, and most of our translations do that, all right? I, I don't think so. I actually think it shouldn't be read at the last time he shall stand at the earth, but actually as a noun. Not at the last time, but the last one will stand upon the dust. In other words, the last one, the final one, refers to the lordship and the sovereignty of God himself. The last one will stand upon the dust. Then why dust? Because that's the material of our world that witnesses to our human frailty. Isn't it Psalm 90 or Psalm 91 that says, Oh Lord, you remember our frame. You know that we're just dust. He remembers the day that he collected the dust and he made Adam you know, out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him his own animating spirit. He knows from which we come. I think there's something beautiful and powerful about the graveside ceremony and liturgies that are still a part of our tradition here, that, that makes those old, that seem kind of archaic claims, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, to remind us about our human frailty. And here, Job is using that image to speak about the sovereign God will at the final day stand upon the very dust, the very material from which you and I come. He will be there. So here's Job in Job 19, clinging to the ground, pounding on the dust, so to speak, 
struggling to hold his breath as the waves of his life and his soul. And here's the hard thing. God himself seems to be beating down on him. And Job in this state refuses to let go of this future hope and confidence that even when his skin might leave his bones, he's going to see God. I refuse by God's grace to let go of God's promises. And here's the hard thing. Even when my suffering appears to be caused by God himself. Even when God, who was at one point my friend, now appears to be my adversary. Even when God is an adversary to me. I'm going to hold on to his promises and I'll refuse to let go of him because I know at the last time he is the one that will stand on the dust and there will be a redeemer. That's why I think this is the Job is Christianity 702. Um, And if you read in the tradition, I think you'd be surprised to find out how many of those that where I teach at Beeson, we have a dome in our chapel with all these you know, the, the big name saints, you know, of the history gone past. If we filled our own dome here at the Advent with those church leaders and theologians and pastors and missionaries and servants of God, lay people, ordained people who've given their lives to the Lord in service and in, in an abandonment, and we made our own dome, and then we're able to interview all those people up in the, that dome from time past, I think we would all be stunned how many of them in their own experiences recognize that there were those times when I once knew God as a friend, but then he became to me an adversary. You read any of Martin Luther's writings, not just before he had his great conversion moment, any of Luther's writings throughout his life, he constantly had these struggles that would emerge where he knew that he was wrestling with God. That God who seemed to be his friend was now one that appeared to be his adversary. You'll find this all the time. Famous line from Teresa of Avila, the medieval uh, mystic um, who apparently was suffering with fever and came to a river that she had to cross. And as she came to the river, she wasn't up to it physically to cross the river. And she said, God, um, why are you doing this to me? And she said, God responded, because I hurt my friends. And Teresa apparently replied, and that's why you have so few of them. So this is, again, our, this is our perspective. Now, there's another part of this that I think is really important. When Job felt God in his experience to be most absent, those were the moments in which God was actually most present. Again, you and I get a vantage point as readers that Job didn't have in his own personal story. We're getting to see Job here who's wrestling with God but, and thinking that God had abandoned him. But God had not abandoned him. God was with him and eventually provides for Job an encounter with himself that's unparalleled in the Bible. We have people who have encounters with God. Moses at the burning bush, Mount Sinai. But this kind of extended interlocution between God and Job, its an, I mean, we're talking chapters worth of direct speech from God to Job. Job gets his day in court. That's what's so amazing. The day in court that he wanted before the heavenly tribunal, Job gets it. And he says not a word. All that case. Write it down, friends. I'm building my case. Get it all together because I'm going, I'm going to bring my exhibits before the God to prove. He doesn't say a word. God just begins to speak. Where, where were, Job, where were you when I made the world? Um, you, you, you've heard about Leviathan? That famous or mythic 
monster of the sea. If you saw Leviathan, you'd, you'd fall over dead, Job. And I'd play catch with him in the backyard. Um, it's hard. By the way, it's, it's, and this is, I hope you're okay with this. It was 700 class here. Um, there's, there's no hugging going on in this part. It's, it's not, it's not therapeutic what Job, God does with Job. It's, it's hard. Um, there's, there's even a little bit of what you might consider to be divine sarcasm at play. Um, have you, did you make the world? Is your, is your knowledge like my knowledge? Are we going to start thinking, Job, in analogical terms between you and me? Because the analogies break down at every level. So Job gets this incredible vision of God and his being and his otherness, recognizing that even in God's otherness, that same God is his redeemer in chapter 19 that he's holding on to for dear life because he knows that his only hope is the last one who's given to him a redeemer. So Lord, I pray in this season that you will bless us as we as we enter into, Lord, and as we are already in Advent. This is the time, Lord, for us to take stock, a time for us to wrestle, a time for us to pray. I pray that you'll create space in our hearts and our minds to do that. And to know that, Lord, even in your otherness, even in your, in your status as completely sovereign and holy and unlike anything that we can ever think or know, you've stooped low to us and your son. You've given us a redeemer. You've provided for us, Lord, an arbiter between us and between the Father so that we are safe because of what he's done for us. Lord, I pray that that will give us enormous freedom. Freedom, Lord, from the tyranny of our own self-doubt. Freedom, Lord, from the tyranny of our fear about what other people think of us. And a freedom, Lord, to love you and abandon and to love our neighbor. Release us, Lord, because of the overwhelming picture of who you are and of what you've done for us and your son. We are safe in you. And because of that, O oh Lord, I pray that you'll help us to hold on to you in your promises in this season. Bless these friends. Encourage and strengthen them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.